B.C. passes the 3 million dose milestone. We are making great strides and we want to keep this momentum going. Why the interval for second shots is going to be a lot shorter. New information about a stabbing on the seawall. It was after uh, an uh, argument happened. What we're learning about the skateboarding suspect now facing charges. And anti-logging protesters dig in. The latest from the front lines near Ferry Creek, where police needed jackhammers to clear the road. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. BC is drastically reducing the interval between first and second shots, hoping to have everyone fully vaccinated by the end of summer. Notifications are already going out to roughly 400,000 people who are now eligible to get their second dose. As Richard Zussman reports, it's a major change in vaccine guidelines, cutting the interval between doses down to just eight weeks. Since the start of BC's COVID-19 immunization plan, the focus has been on one thing. Get as many first doses done as possible. That's now changing. We're accelerating our dose two for our age-based whole of community, our age-based program, and people who are clinically extremely vulnerable. The province announcing Thursday the gap shrinking between first and second doses from 13 weeks to eight weeks. We need to make sure that those who are most at risk get this added protection as soon as possible. This means 400,000 people, those 70 plus Indigenous British Columbians and those clinically extremely vulnerable are now eligible for a second dose. Notifications now going out. The key is registering online. What we don't have that's in the registration system is an email or phone number. That means if you're not registered in the system, you can't get these automated tests, text or emails to invite you uh, to book your, your dose two appointment. Those not registered will be getting a letter about booking their second shot, but it could delay the booking. 90% of those over the age of 80 have now received at least one dose. It goes down to 83% for those 60 to 79 and 67% for those 40 to 60. One concern is the Moderna vaccine, where supply is low. The province will now, in some cases, provide Pfizer for someone who has received a first dose of Moderna. We now have good evidence that it's safe to have an alternative with the same type of vaccine. So in this case, we're talking about the messenger RNA vaccines. As for those that have received the AstraZeneca vaccine, Dr. Henry says more details will come next week around whether they can receive a different type of vaccine for that second dose. No matter what vaccine you receive, though, a new promise from the province, everyone will be offered a second dose by the end of August. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. BC's seven-day rolling average of case numbers is up slightly today to 330, following a high number of new cases over the past 24 hours. We have 378 new cases, bringing BC's total to 143,264, with 3,543 of those cases currently active. 286 people are in hospital, 88 of those in the ICU, and sadly, Seven more people have died. He is live with more on today's update from health officials. Keith, uh, we heard that vaccine news this afternoon. Also, many people have been waiting for the easing of restrictions around indoor faith services, and they're a go as of today, but there are guidelines. 
Yeah, and they're the old guidelines that were in existence before those services were suspended. So, again, limits on crowds, 50 people max. And that includes everybody on the premises. It's not just the congregation. It's who's ever administering the service. Uh, musical soloists, for example. There are rules, no choirs, uh, for example. And Dr. Bonnie Henry pointed out today, again, 50 is the maximum number of people allowed. The allowance for up to 50 people at indoor face services with detailed uh, COVID safety plans in place. And I just want to express my gratitude to Dr. Robert Dome and the wise counsel of the faith leaders who worked with us to develop these guidelines. And Keith, more positive news today uh, for parents and kids. The uh, prospect of overnight youth camps looking up this summer. Yes, again, a lot of things that were suspended last summer are going to be coming back to life, whether it's camps, sports, uh, you name it. Uh, we're going to be a lot more active this summer than last summer, and that includes sending kids to overnight camps. The rules aren't set in place yet. Dr. Henry says that will become clear over the course of the summer. We've been working with uh, the camps associations and our provincial health officer order um, about overnight camps for children and youth will be amended in the coming days to allow them to happen this summer with specific conditions and, uh, and we're working those out with the uh, appropriate associations. So as everything starts to open up in some form or another, look for safety plans to be the heart and stone for uh, heart and soul for everything that reopens. We're not going back to the old normal that was before the pandemic. We're going back to the, the relatively new rules that were there at the beginning of the, of the pandemic in many cases. That likely includes children's overnight camps. So look for some limits on crowds associated with that activity as well. Well, we've definitely learned to adapt. All right. Thanks <laughs> for that, Keith. A new COVID rapid testing clinic at UBC could have far-reaching implications for the rest of us. The university will study the test, which collects a sample from the front of the nose to help determine its accuracy and whether it can better detect asymptomatic cases. Aaron MacArthur reports. It only takes 15 minutes. In that time, students and staff at UBC can self-test for COVID-19. Tests conducted as part of a clinical trial to approve the use of a take-home testing kit. We're trying to understand the sensitivity of the rapid test um, compared to the PCR. The clinical trial based on the work done in a pilot program in dorm housing at UBC. Thousands of students were tested several asymptomatic cases detected. As we open up where we are going to see that masks maybe are not mandatory, you may feel a bit anxious and want to make sure that you yourself are protecting yourself but also protecting the people that you're going to be hanging out with. Turn the tube and apply four drops of... If the tests made by Roche get approval for use by Health Canada, they could be deployed at hockey games or at airport screening points. Self-testing is new to Canada, but it has been used elsewhere in the world with varying degrees of success. BC's public health officer sees this kind of testing as a useful add-on to tools already out there where we will be continuing um, to increase uh, the use of, of rapid testing is to, uh, to support people getting back to uh, work um, settings, communal living settings. Yeah. You're all done? Yeah. Clinical trial at UBC needs 500 volunteers to meet its goals. It's a bit of a race against time. Vaccinated volunteers can still be tested, but won't be included in the published study. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. 
The integrated homicide investigation team has been called in after a deadly shooting in Chilliwack. Just after 1 a.m., calls came into police about a man suffering from gunshot wounds who'd been taken to hospital. He has since died. A home in the 8800 block of Broadway remains behind police tape, but there is no word on the identity of the victim or the circumstances surrounding the death. Anyone with information about the shooting is asked to call Crime Stoppers or the IHIT tip line. And multiple sites in Nanaimo are the focus of a major search involving dozens of police officers and members of the RCMP tactical and forensic identification teams. They converged on an apartment building at the corner of Rose Hill and Vancouver Avenue, while an underwater recovery team is searching Divers Lake. Police say they're looking for evidence in a missing persons case that's being called suspicious. The search effort is expected to continue for a couple more days. Charges have now been laid in a stabbing on the seawall at Sunset Beach late yesterday afternoon. Nitu Garcha is live with more on what we know about the suspect and, Nitu, the direct appeal to the public that police made today. That's right, Chris, and that appeal is about weapons. Police say carrying them is unnecessary and dangerous. This after a good Samaritan who tried to step in and calm a confrontation near the Sunset Beach concession behind me was attacked and taken to hospital in critical condition. Now, Global News has learned that 25-year-old Karampal Singh Brar has been charged with one count of assault with a weapon and one count of aggravated assault. Here's what we know about the sequence of events leading up to the horrific daylight attack around 415 Wednesday. Police say a man on a skateboard ran into a jogger and knocked him down. The jogger wasn't hurt and continued on, but a short time later, two other bystanders, a man and a woman, suggested he take his skateboard to a different path. As those two parties argued, police say a 33-year-old man intervened and was stabbed multiple times by the man with the skateboard. Here's more from the VPD. The people involved knew each other. Um, it wasn't random in the sense where this man was going up to stab random people. It was after uh, an uh, argument happened. That's not to justify it by no means, but it was a, a, a verbal altercation that happened. Um, suspect became agitated and then um, kind of escalated with uh, the stabbing. Unfortunately, this is something that we have seen a few times this month already in the same neighborhood. This month alone, four violent incidences in and around downtown Vancouver beaches have occurred. As you heard there, four violent attacks in nearby beaches have happened in as many weeks, Chris, which is why the VPD plans to step up police patrols in those areas. And they're asking anybody who finds themselves in a similar confrontation to call 911 right away. Chris. The best advice. Okay, Nitu Garcha down at Vancouver, Spanish Banks for us, or sorry, Sunset Beach for us. Thanks, Nitu. A Kamloops First Nation confirms a chilling truth that had only been suspected until now. What they discovered on the grounds of the former residential school and how it's a devastating reminder of the fate of so many children. That's next on the News Hour. Here's something you don't see every day. The carriage horse that caused quite a commotion at a local senior's home coming up on the news hour. Also tonight, the backstory on the viral photo of a giant tree hauled out of the forest on Vancouver Island. We'll tell you about it coming up on the news hour.
Right now, though, a shocking discovery in Kamloops that is shedding new light on the horror of Canada's residential school past. Over the weekend, a survey of the former Kamloops Indian residential school lands located the remains of more than 200 children, some as young as three years old. Our report comes from CFJC News. This is really going to be hitting home to a lot of our people. Like These are children, and, and it is devastating to, you know, be bringing this up. To come up to Squamish Cookby, Roseanne Casimir has confirmed the grim discovery of the remains of 215 children buried on the grounds of the former residential school. In their initial findings, they were saying that from what they can tell and from the size, you know, they're as little as, you know, like potentially like three years old. Crews confirmed the tragic scene over the weekend using a ground-penetrating radar specialist. The surveying work is continuing and it's possible more bodies will be found. We'll be waiting for a report that will be coming out in mid-June. I know that we'll be meeting with the coroner and having dialogue with the um, uh, RCMP. Work on the site dates back to the early 2000s and Tecumlips ensured it was done in a culturally appropriate way with the band's language and cultural department and knowledge keepers. As a reminder to everyone that, that the, you know, the, the legacy of the residential school isn't over yet. Alongside the groundwork, the Squamish Museum's archivist is working with the Royal BC Museum to find any other relevant information to assist, including any records of these deaths. It was inevitable that the grave sites would be found What's shocking is the amount, uh, you know, when you're thinking about 250 unmarked graves, uh, these children should have been buried with dignity. Crews have yet to determine the extent of the site, but given the sensitive nature of what was found, band officials want to make sure its members and surrounding communities who had children attend the school were made aware. It brought tears to my eyes. I'm a mother, I'm a grandmother, I'm an auntie, and, you know, and the impact that it's had on our council to be able to, you know, like going through this and knowing that, you know, we have to share this, you know, not only with our membership, but every single level. Delana Nishaw, CFJC News. VPD admit the arrest of an 81-year-old retired judge on Vancouver seawall was a mistake. Officers were looking for a black man half Selwyn Romilly's age when he was cuffed a short time after that. The police chief has since apologized for the error. But now the Office of the Police Complaints Commissioner wants the VPD to take a second look. Catherine Urquhart has this Global News exclusive. Global News has learned that the Office of the Police Complaint Commissioner has ordered a review into the recent erroneous arrest of former Judge Selwyn Romilly. 81-year-old Romilly was cuffed by VPD officers on the Stanley Park seawall earlier this month as they were looking for a suspect half his age. Not long after he was released, the officers apologized, as did the chief. Mr. Romley did absolutely nothing wrong, and we're very sorry that that happened to him. But I can tell you that that police officer is acting in good faith and trying to do his job under very difficult circumstances. And we're, we're human and we make mistakes. The incident has raised concerns about systemic racism. The OPCC says it did not receive a complaint from Romilly. However, it did receive third-party complaints, which have been referred to the Vancouver Police Board as a service and policy complaint. The nature of the complaints concern the circumstances of this incident and the practices of the VPD, including how police responded and their use of handcuffs. 
The OPCC says the police board is required to determine how to best respond to the complaint and concerns brought forward. The OPCC says it can also make recommendations, noting it will monitor how the Vancouver Police Board responds. The board's next meeting is June 24th. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A steady stream of mourners has been visiting a growing memorial at the site where three Kelowna High School students were killed in a crash early Wednesday morning. The victims have all been identified as grade 12 students at Kelowna Secondary School. Two girls, aged 17 and 18, and an 18-year-old boy. Their classmates say they were great people and they're heartbroken by their loss at what should have been a time of celebration. Devastated. I feel devastated. We shouldn't have lost them so early. They were so great. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. We have three lives that were just taken way too short, about to celebrate a major milestone in their lives. Um, you know what? I, I just can't even imagine what these families are going through. Uh, you see the outpouring of support of uh, their, you know, their friends. Um, this goes beyond just uh, a group of high school friends. This has touched an entire community. The Kelowna RCMP investigation into the crash is ongoing. Still ahead, a man feeling cut off by the impact of COVID. The importance of, uh, of online services and the accessibility of those online services is even more important. How his favorite grocery store let him down when he needed it most and then made up for it. Also tonight, the vote that'll give Vancouver's famous commercial drive a major makeover. A stall on the Arthur Lang Bridge southbound towards the south end is causing some delays. Everyone has to move over to the left lane to get around this. Doesn't look like a tow truck on the scene yet, so this could be blocking traffic for some time. Northbound looks okay, and the other Vancouver-Richmond bridges, Oak and Knight, are looking pretty good as well. Through Kermac Cares for Kids, expert repair for your vehicle helps provide expert care for kids. When you choose Kermac, you choose to support BC Children's Hospital. Kermac Cares for Kids. In Global One above the Arthur Lang Bridge, I'm Tim Main. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC in partnership with Pacific Blue Cross, flexible small business health benefits for challenging times. Major changes are coming to one of Vancouver's most iconic streets. Vancouver City Council has approved a plan to make a large stretch of commercial drive more pedestrian-friendly. Jordan Armstrong has more on how they're planning to do that. The drive could need a rebrand down the road because there will be less emphasis on the driver and more on the pedestrian. Absolutely, 100%. I'm way behind that big time. Vancouver Council has decided to support a vision tabled by the local business society to slow traffic to 30 kilometers an hour and redesignate commercial as a stop-and-shop district rather than an arterial road. The sidewalks are narrow, the road's narrow. It's a little too congested for folks, and so there's really this collective vision around making wider, more comfortable pedestrian spaces. This is what they're going for, the European high streets with bigger sidewalks and crossings for people and two lanes instead of four for vehicles. But what about parking? Fry says restaurants could turn their curbside spaces into a patio, but others who need the parking could keep it. This man, who says 80% of his customers arrive by car, is worried. If they don't have a park, they can't come. 
Yeah. Sometimes still they don't come because they can't find the parking. Across the street, a cafe owner admits he was skeptical of the plan, but now supports it. Sometimes when you think it's not a good idea, it becomes a good idea. It's like the smoking bylaw. We didn't believe it was a good idea at the time. Actually, it's, it's what works better. The priority here is just to sort of set that vision, get folks excited about what that kind of idea could look like. How do we incorporate placemaking and enhance pedestrian experience to really make the drive come alive? City staff will now study design concepts and figure out how buses can be accommodated. The changes will be made gradually over time. In fact, there's no money set aside in the current capital budget. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Many people are relying on online shopping during the pandemic, a convenient and safe way to get groceries. And for blind and visually impaired consumers, it's even more critical. Consumer Matters reporter Andrew joins us with more on one man's struggle and with a large grocery chain after its shopping app went through a major upgrade to handle pandemic demand. That's right, Chris. Richard Marion says at the beginning of the year, Save on Foods updated its online site, but in the process, a number of the accessibility features on the app were removed. He reached out to the company, but says for months the issue went unresolved. That's when Richard contacted Consumer Matters to investigate. Shopping online for groceries during the pandemic has become an essential part of everyday life for Richard Marion. The importance of, uh, uh, of online services and the accessibility of those online services is even more important. Richard is blind and uses the Save on Foods grocery shopping app. Save on Foods menu button. It has features that help people who are visually impaired shop online. Weekly flyers, more rewards. But in January, Save on Foods updated its online shopping app. In the process, Richard says a number of the accessibility features were removed. Try again. Try again. The main screen of the app became virtually unusable. Cancel. You couldn't find the weekly flyers. It would say that they're there, but it wouldn't actually read the items. There was a problem. Richard says for several months, he repeatedly contacted Save on Foods customer service department wrote letters, even volunteered to speak with the IT department, but got little response. It definitely doesn't make me feel equal in the sense that I, like I, I should be able to expect the same range of services as people who are sighted. Rob Sleeth represents Access for Sight Impaired Consumers. He says Richard's recent online experience is all too common. There's many cases where we've written to companies, we've had to file human rights complaints to get their websites accessible. Favorites list. Sleeth also says companies need to do a better job at managing their websites, not just from a sighted person's point of view, but through the lens of a person with a disability. The problem is that they've designed their websites without people with disabilities in mind. And so to go back and have to make that website accessible now is a big job. Consumer Matters reached out to Save on Foods on Richard's behalf. Shortly after, he got a call from the president of Save on Foods, Daryl Jones. He apologized for it and uh, basically said that they, that they had no excuses. They, they had dropped the ball. In a statement, Save on Foods said in part, our development teams continue to work on bug fixes and platform enhancements to make the site web content accessibility guidelines compliant. We understand this has caused a significant impact to many of our customers and are working as fast as we can to fix the bugs which are causing these issues. Since Consumer Matters reached out, Save on Foods has also offered to shop online for Richard while the online issues get worked out. Thank you. I'm glad that you were able to assist and, uh, and make them realize that they, they really did make a mistake. 
Richard Marion also told us that accessibility, especially during the pandemic, should not be an optional add-on. It's crucial to ensure that people who are blind have the same range of services and products available to them as anyone else. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters.globalnews.ca. All right, and thank you. Just ahead, the fight in the forest over old growth logging intensifies. Back up, please. Back up. Let's go. Back up. While police enforce an injunction, new details about this viral photo of a giant tree galvanizing protesters. Also coming up, the invasive species taking over in Cultus Lake. Taking a look at the Alex Fraser Bridge, there is a crash northbound in the middle lane of the three northbound lanes. So only traffic getting by is in the left lane there. So the backup now going into Delta, it is quite significant. Just north of the bridge, there's also a vehicle that's gone off the road at the 9191A split. So you're going to hit two issues if you are traveling across this route tonight. Sussex Insurance are your auto insurance experts. Get more, save more with Stratford Private Auto. Ask for details on your next renewal. Find your nearest location at sussexinsurance.com. In Global One, above the Alex Fraser Bridge, I'm Tim Main. Despite the ongoing enforcement of a court injunction that's resulted in more than 130 arrests, the protesters near Ferry Creek on southern Vancouver Island say they are not planning to leave. This week, Global's Paul Johnson spent several days at the protest camps, where both protesters and the police are employing new techniques to get the upper hand. They call this the sleeping dragon. There were four young women with their arms emplaced in the surface of a logging road. Exactly how they're keeping seat. I'm currently cemented into the ground. I'm going to be here for a while. We are in protest of logging of the ancient old growth forest. Another blockader was ensconced in a structure of wood and branches. I ask you to step aside and remove the blockade. First, Mounties read the injunction to the blockaders, then began the process of removing them. The wood structure was dismantled easily and the protester taken into custody. The sleeping dragons took much longer and involved the Mounties carefully digging out their equipment. At one point, they needed a jackhammer. After approximately an hour, the first of the sleeping dragons was breached and the blockader led away unhurt. This isn't a negotiation, this isn't question and answers. One new flashpoint is between police and the news media, with the Mounties insisting they have the right to control reporters' movements, allegedly to protect their safety, though no safety issue was observed or cited by them. Don't put this in my face. You will be arrested if you do not comply. In the second week of enforcement action, there is no sign of an end game at Ferry Creek. Despite the objection of some leaders of the local First Nation to the protests, their numbers have only grown. On Wednesday, there was the extraordinary sight of dozens of people in their 70s, 80s, and even 90s risking arrest. The police dropped their lines as they approached. The police made the before the people's The logging company Teal Jones didn't respond to our request for comment Thursday. At Ferry Creek, Paul Johnson, Global News. 
Well, it's an image that has been going viral, quickly becoming a global symbol on the ongoing fight over old growth logging in B.C. Nanaimo's Lorna Beecroft captured this photo on Monday, showing a giant spruce log being hauled along a Vancouver Island highway. Her photo has been shared nearly 20,000 times on Facebook alone. While it appears the log was pulled from the forest last year and has been sitting in a sorting lot since, the attention it's getting speaks to the growing outrage over BC's logging practices. With knowing that we've got these people out at Ferry Creek and these other blockades trying to protect these old growth forests, that 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 is what these people are out there trying to protect and that's what we all need to get serious about protecting. Late this afternoon, the Ministry of Forest, Lands, Natural Resource Operations and Rural Development confirmed that tree was cut on the North Island sometime between March and mid-August of 2020. That was just one month before the special tree protection regulation came into effect. And due to the date of harvest, no fines will be issued. A B.C. biologist is waging a war against an invasive species in one of the province's most popular lakes. As Linda Aylesworth reports, the fish that's causing so much trouble in Cultus Lake was brought to B.C. deliberately. One thing about fishing on Cultus Lake is that you will eventually catch a smallmouth bass. I did say eventually, but apparently they're worth an angler's patience. They are a very hard-fighting fish. They're they're fun to catch, and uh, the only problem is they're very voracious and they could eat lots of salmon juveniles. We're here. Which is why Peter and Nick are helping biologist Wendy Margetts with a project. Yeah, that's a good one. We're studying smallmouth bass to see what they're eating, if they're impacting the endangered species in the lake, both the sockeye salmon and the pygmy sculpin. Smallmouth bass are an invasive species introduced to B.C. from the East Coast over 100 years ago. Today, some anglers continue to introduce them into local waters. We just want to get out that message that please don't move these fish. One, it's illegal, and two, it can really impact native populations. The research part of the project involves anesthetizing the bass. Once knocked out, they can either examine the stomach contents or insert an acoustic tag through a small incision. This allows Wendy to track them. We want to know where they are so we can better suppress the population. So once we know where they're spawning, where they're migrating to, then we can target those populations. This is one way they're trying to suppress the growing bass population. So when we're snorkeling, we'll see those nests. I have a garden tool with me and I will physically destroy the nest, covering them in sediment. Another way, encouraging anglers to catch as many as they can, if they can. Oh, he snagged me up, Peter. Do you believe that? We really are just looking at a sustainable suppression method to keep their population down so that the 19 other species of fish in the lake can survive. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. And that story is a very bittersweet one for us because it is Linda's last report for us. After 40 years here at Global She's retiring. A little later tonight, we'll pay tribute to her remarkable award-winning career. Mm-hmm. Well, the residents of a Vancouver senior's home had a very unusual visitor today, all 2,200 pounds of him. All right, let's rock and roll. The Stanley Park horse-drawn tours brought Lonnie, 
one of their Percheron horses to the Louis Breyer home and hospital. The visit designed to give the residents a personal experience with the gentle giant. It's part of the company's visit program based on the sense of peace and tranquility that close contact with horses can evoke. Having a horse coming into the building is really something else. It's the first for us, and what makes it really magical is seeing residents react to the enormity of this, this massive animal. I am a rubber of noses and shins on horses, and this was just lovely to interact with that horse. And look at his eyes. His eyes are very gentle. What is it about that, about seeing the horse, first of all, its size in, in that room, and the touch? <coughs> Sorry, I'm a little bit, um, I don't know what's happening today, but there's so many nice people, you know, and they haven't seen a lot of their loved ones for years, a year now, the pandemic. So it's, it's heartwarming. Oh, Jerry is such a good dude. Love him. He helps us out a lot, too, during the Santa Claus parade as well. All right, still ahead, our final farewell to reporter Linda Aylesworth. In total, there's going to be about 20 surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses involved. Wrapping up her award-winning 40-year career telling BC stories. And in sports, one of Canada's best ball players comes out of retirement, sharing her message to other moms. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Whistler Blackcomb says it's aiming to restart operations by Monday. The resort shut down in late March in line with provincial health orders. But now that those orders are relaxing, it's preparing to ramp up its mountain biking operations. Whistler is targeting a May 31st reopening. Mountain bikers will still have to wear masks in lineups, indoors, and on the lifts. At least it's opening up. That's right. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon mm -hmm. is here now with a look at our forecast. And we just have to get through this little period mm -hmm. and get on to the other side. And you can see a little bit of blue sky off in the distance there. So we may have done it, everyone. We maybe may have gotten through it, although there are a few showers that are still lingering. Uh, quickly, I want to show you a photo from this afternoon from Matt Robson looking out over the Strait of Georgia. Just stunning shot with these dark clouds and that downpour of rain. And I know you probably felt the rain. It was heavy at times, and we had a number of thunderstorms in through the interior regions, most often to Alberta now, but still a number of showers and a risk of thunderstorms. Tomorrow morning, a clearing trend, still a chance of showers in the morning, but overall western sections will be enjoying sunshine by the afternoon, but northeast metro Vancouver, so that's Maple Ridge out towards Pitt Meadows and certainly through the Fraser Valley, I think the showers and cloud cover will linger a little bit longer for you, but by evening you should be out of it. And we've got lots of sunshine in store for us for the weekend. So, south and BC Peace River, right down in through the Okanagan Valley, the Thompson region, the Kootenai area, still a number of showers and a risk of thunderstorms tomorrow for you, but you'll clear out on Saturday as well so lots to look forward to look at that five-day forecast terrific and it is going to get hot next week so get prepared for the heat everyone tomorrow again is our transition day with still some cloud and showers especially through the morning hours but sunshine by the afternoon tonight central windows weather window is mamatas clouds these are these pouch like clouds that sort of billow out from the bottom of these uh, usually thunderstorms or cumulonimbus clouds this was taken just today in cold stream because of the thunderstorms that were in through that region Mamatas referring to 
uh, more like breasts, you could say. Like that's where the Ooh. Latin term mama comes from. <laughs> uh-huh. I get it now. I see. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> All right, here is uh, Squire with a look ahead of what's coming up on sports. Okay, so with the Olympics coming up, Canada's softball team asked Lauren Bay Regula to come out of retirement and lead them in Tokyo. Um, I'm just working my butt off like crazy to, to get back where I need to be. And they don't care if she's 39. They need her to win this summer. Also tonight, she's a friend to whales and sea otters and every other creature on the West Coast. Our tribute to reporter Linda Aylesworth as she wraps up a stellar career. See what I did there? All right, I had something on my face. Are you okay? (laughs) I'm okay. You need to send someone in there to help you? No, no one's allowed in here. Social distancing still. We haven't dropped the rules yet. Okay. (laughs) Okay, what do you have? Okay. Uh, Maple Leaf fans are a rather nervous bunch, and they've been conditioned, conditioned make that, to be that way. No matter how good things look, especially in the playoffs, Leaf fans know danger always lurks around the corner. They see their team like minor characters in a horror movie. They're the ones who the monster always seems to get. Austin Matthews had a good game, too, but he hasn't done a lot in this series against Montreal, but they are up 3-0 or make that 3-1 in the halves in the series. But then in the game, they fell 3-0 down. Yoel Armina had two goals, but they came back. And two goals from Jake Muzzin? Really? And they're going overtime. And if Toronto scores, they're going to face Winnipeg in round two. A 1979 Opeechee Gretzky Mint Condition 10 rookie card sold today for a mint. $3.75 million. A different rookie card by Gretzky uh, sold for $1.29 million last December. The auction company won't disclose the name of the seller or buyer, but apparently they are both equally as happy about the deal. This is Alec Manoa, his first game in the majors for the Toronto Blue Jays at Yankee Stadium. And that's his mom, Susanna. Is she happy? Here's his first strikeout in the majors. He is not shy. And here's his mom, Susanna. Now give this kid some help. Simeon with the home run. The Jays would give him two runs. That's all he would need. Another strikeout. He had seven. He's the winner. His mom's happy. The family's happy. It's a good story. Toronto wins. They lost the second game to the doubleheader, but they won the first game. Uh, Trails Lauren Bay Regula has retired, or had retired, make that, from professional softball. Just like her older brother Jason retired from Major League Baseball. But unlike Jason, Lauren is back. She's made a comeback because her country needed her to pitch again. You know, I've played one season in the last 12. It'll be two in the last 13 coming up on this Olympics. And um, I'm just working my butt off like crazy to, to get back where I need to be. You know you're good at what you do when, even at age 39, Softball Canada asks you to come out of retirement again to help them win a medal at the Olympics. Lauren Bay Regula is one of Canada's greatest pitchers ever. And when the call came to play for Canada one last time, this veteran of the diamond couldn't say no. I'm the oldest. I'll be 40 this year. Um, our youngest is 23 right now. She'll be 24. So, I, you know, it's a running joke that I could be her mother. 
Well, she still throws it like a mother. Her fastball has the same velocity as it did two decades ago. But now she really is a mom. That's what she's been dedicating her life to the past dozen or so years. But it came with heavy depression, and it took its toll until she decided to go public with what she was going through. I started to share, and I did it more so to just rid myself of that heaviness And I was really afraid. The messages from women who felt that they weren't alone, I'm probably going to start crying now, but just hearing how my message had resonated to moms and to feeling, you know, on an island has really sparked me into wanting to speak. And and I would never want anyone to feel like the way I did. Now she says she is in a great headspace, showing her kids that anything is possible. She's come a long ways from the 23-year-old who is getting ready for her first Olympics back in 2004. I think there's enough international experience for sure, and I think being young isn't necessarily a bad thing anyways. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes the younger you are, the, what you don't know definitely can work to your advantage. Just like experience will tell her, this is definitely it when it comes to comebacks. The next hope for softball is going to be 2028, uh, and I will tell you I am 100% done for that. <laughs> okay, this is crazy. Javier Baez, there's two out here. Will Craig just step on first base and this is over? But he chases Baez, and that allows Wilson Contreras to score. Oh, you got to be kidding me. And then Baez gets all the way to second. What's the lesson here? All the first baseman had to do was step back, touch the bag. Didn't have to chase him. But it makes for a great highlight. There you go. Throw from third could have been a little more accurate. Yeah, I'm just that, saying. that I'm pulled just him saying. off the bag, but just yeah. back up, yeah, touch. You're right. There you go. All right, thanks, Squire. All right, a big change coming at Global News. We'll say goodbye to one of our own coming up next. Well, today marks a bittersweet day for us here at Global BC. She has been an amazing colleague, a mentor, and a friend. And now, after a career spanning more than 40 years, reporter Linda Aylesworth is hanging up her microphone. Here's a look back at her incredible career, put together by her friend and editor, Ted Anhorn. Five, four, three, two, one. Three to voiceover, two. One, two voiceover, two shot on three. Nobody three. In case you've forgotten, my name is Webster, Jack Webster. This tattered poster has a simple message. I dreamt the homeless weren't. Here in Seattle, 5,000 people every night have nowhere to go. Half of those people are men, but the other half, the other 2,500 Seattleites without a residence, are women and children. At the Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York, Dr. Nora Volkov has discovered a link between dopamine and obesity. She found that obese people have fewer dopamine receptors than thin people. The stress makes it even harder for Andrea to breathe. But in a few hours, if it all goes well, Getting enough air will never be a problem again. The transplant will occupy three operating rooms. Bill, the father, is in that operating room. Bruce, the brother, is in this operating room. And just across the hall is Andrea. In total, there's going to be about 20 surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurses involved. 
This is what the Marine Mammal Rescue Center in Vancouver is best known for. Every year they rehabilitate over a hundred orphaned harbor seal pups. Once in a while, something unusual arrives in need of help. Meet Joey, a two-week-old sea otter pup discovered last week near the northern tip of Vancouver Island. Today, I'm offered the unique opportunity to take a shift. Your feet are a little soggy, are <laughs> My feet are already wet. <laughs> For the next 30 minutes, we'll be giving Levi a break from the sling and encouraging him, with a little assistance, to swim. And we're out. And how's it feel? It feels amazing. It's amazing. It also feels sad because he shouldn't be in a position that I can hold him. It is the largest intact temperate rainforest on Earth, home of some of the planet's most unique and magnificent creatures. It is the Great Bear Rainforest. Deep in the woods along a small salmon stream, we hunker down and watch a steady parade of black bears and their cubs. But then, in the distance, a flash of white. It's a large male. He's not an albino, but a black bear with a rare recessive gene. Her name was Keela, was because in the early hours of the morning, she died unexpectedly where she was born 21 years ago at the Vancouver Aquarium. She was the longest lived calf that was born in captivity. There have been other calves born, but none that lived as long as what Keela did. As many as 100 labs around the world are working on a vaccine for COVID-19. Among them, UBC's Michael Smith Laboratories in Vancouver. They're going to follow the whale. They're going to monitor it for the next few days as, as long as they can. Hope that it doesn't turn back onto this beach. Hope that it gets in the right way and it, and it goes up to Alaska. All right, Linda, thanks very much. That was one of the greatest bloopers of all time. <laughs> was it not? She kept it cool <laughs> through the whole thing, too, and she knew exactly what was going on. She has a gift for taking the most complicated story and making it a compelling and understandable story for the rest of us. Uh, happy birthday as well. Your gift is you can retire now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. <laughs> uh, just incredible career, and we're so thankful for all the work she's put in for the News Hour. Linda, uh, thank you so much, and have a great night, everybody. Enjoy the retirement. Good night, all.